12 from the Shirokum. Dijan planting in the fields. The pointer. Scholars plow with the pen. Orators plow with the tongue. We patchwork mendicants lazily watch the white ox on an open ground, not pay attention to the rootless, auspicious grass. How to pass the days? The main case. Dijang asked Zhushan, Where do you come from? Zhushan said, From the south. Dijang said, How is Buddhism in the south these days? Zhushan said, There is extensive discussion. Dijang said, How can that compare to me here, planting the fields and making rice to eat? Zhushan said, What can you do about the world? Dijang said, What do you call the world? The verse. Source and explanation variously are all made up. Passing to ear for mouth, it comes apart. Planting fields, making rice, ordinary household matters. Only those who have investigated to the full would know. Having investigated to the full, you clearly know there's nothing to seek. Jifang, after all, did not care about being in fifth as a marquee. Forgetting his state, he returned, same as fish and birds, washing his feet in the Kanglang, the hazy waters of autumn. So I'd like to welcome old friends and uh, new friends. It's a pleasure, uh, it's always nice to it's nice to keep doing what we're doing on a regular basis and uh, know that we are here for anybody. Anybody who wishes to plunge into the practice either as a beginner or as an old-timer, right, to, to join. And as soon as anybody, and really anybody, shows up, on the first day, from the first step into this place, they are embraced as part of the family. Even if it's just one time. Even if we never see them again, still, part of the family. The family, obviously, of the Sangha, but also the recognition that we are one family whether we meet each other or not, whether we know each other or not. So, in a way, all we're doing here is just reminding ourselves, yeah, we all want family. We all want. Reminding ourselves to put all the concepts, all the thoughts, all the judgments aside for a little while <coughs> and step into functioning as one. Not just talking about it. So, this koan, <coughs> Dijang, lived during the 9th and 10th century in China, it was the successor of Zhuangxia, 
Actually, I talked about them at the Sushin last weekend. When we first studied Zen under Jefin, simple. But it says that he was unable to penetrate the teaching, so he went on to study under Zhuangzi. One day, Zhuangzi questioned Dijang and said, In the three realms, there's only mind. How do you understand this? Dijang pointed to a chair and said, What does the master call this? Zhuangzi said, A chair. Dijang said, then the master can say that in the three worlds there's only mind. Yuansha said, I say that it is made from bamboo and wood. What do you say it's made from? Dijang said, I also say it's made from bamboo and wood. Yuansha said, I've searched across the great earth for a person who understands the Buddha Dharma, but I haven't found one. It says that this dialogue cleared up all Dijang's doubts. So, we were talking about the four-legged platform. How could that be? How could this discussion, this short dialogue, clear things up? Is it a chair? What do we call it? On Thursday, I, uh, I was invited to teach a class about Buddhism at uh, a college. It was an adult education program, and uh, Bergen County College. And uh, it was quite an interesting experience. I showed up when I was, at the beginning, I was. Uh, I had stuff to talk about, you know, basics of Buddhism and history of Buddhism and all that. But at the beginning, I was really much more interested in the people that were there, about 35 people, and I wanted to know where they're at. What do they want? Um, it was a, actually, I was the last in a series of, uh, I think on a weekly basis, they had uh, somebody from different, different religions come to speak about that religion. Um, so I was the last in that group, and I wanted to know where they're at about it, what did they learn, what's missing, uh, how do they have doubts, less doubts, more doubts. And at the beginning they expressed interest in, they all came with pads and pen. They wanted to know about Buddhism, but they wanted to know the facts, they wanted to know the details of Buddhism, but not really the heart of it. Right? I mean, the history of Buddhism and who did what and when is not really where the heart of it is. Right? The heart of it is always right here, right now, in the way we live, the way we communicate, not what we call it but what it really is. So, after listening to them, and I said, well, you, you came here with, each one of you has a big file cabinet, and this file cabinet, they were all the people, so obviously the older we get, the more, the bigger the file cabinet gets, and then in that file cabinet, there are many, many folders, and then all we want to do often is 
figure out where should I place this, right? Whatever it is I'm encountering, which file does it belong to? Right? So then I can comfortably slide it into this folder, this file, and then move on. What's next? How can I enrich this file cabinet? And, uh, and I said right from the beginning, I said, well, Zen is not going to fit in any file, any cabinet. It will always refuse to be conformed to any idea we have of it. But at the same time, it always offers a way out of the cabinet, immediately. And it's really interesting how they, they reacted to that, because that spots something. Because in a way, the file cabinet uh, stifles or quells the natural curiosity we have about life. Right? It's, it's, it's more about the known than the unknown. It's more about what I know and how can I fortify what I know. Either accept what I see based on what I know or reject it based on what I know. Which really, all it does is just keeps us confined in, in, in a room, in a box. In the so, it was a very lively discussion and, and one of the questions, a bunch of questions that came out, one of them was, um, somebody asked if I considered Buddhism uh, to be a philosophy or a religion. I just said, I don't consider it, I live it. I'm more interested in living it than considering it. I don't care. I don't mind what it is called or what you call it. And more than that, if we're going to sit here and discuss what we call it, what is it more accurately, is it more philosophy or religion, then we are going to really miss the point. And that's a shame. Because we are here to embody, to live it rather than to discuss it. So, how do we live it, or do we live it? Or are we too, or more, interested in the idea of it? So, we'll try and use this con for that, but it's a very interesting discussion. I may go back to this, talking about uh, the uh, experience but it was fascinating. The other thing is also that evening happened to be on the same day. That evening I uh, was invited to teach about Buddhism at a, at a local church, which, which also came up with the idea of inviting uh, people from different uh, religions to talk about that particular religion. And, but again, even that, I felt that it is more about intellectual enrichment than really diving into what the message points at. And that's a shame, because again, we missed the point. So, so in this koan, <coughs> this koan, we encountered this Yang as a teacher. And then he's having a dialogue with Zhushan, who was on a pilgrimage. Right? So the Yang already was cleared up and became a successor and became a teacher. And so he asked Zhushan, where do you come from? And Zhushan said, I come from the south. 
Dijan said, how is Buddhism in the Southeast Asia? And Dijan said, there is extensive discussion. Right? There is extensive discussion. So there's a lot of talk about Buddhism. Right? Like, like there is today. <coughs> and in relation to what's happening in uh, with Buddhism around the world in Myanmar, Burma, right? Especially in light of the horrific violence that is going on there. I wanted to say a few words about that. You know, it's a country where 89% population are actually followers of Buddhism. And they've been going through a purging process of the Rohingya people, which in terms of Buddhist teachings doesn't really make much sense. No, we, we purge of what? Even if we purge, even if we throw away, everything is included. So the act of removing a group of people doesn't remove anything. All it does is just creates, it brings up more of the three poisons, right? We, we, we enact the three poisons, the greed, anger, and ignorance. But even in the act of removing, we're not removing anything. So... Right there, it's so odd. So here's what I found in relation to that about the Rohingya people. It says that the Rohingya are described as the world's most persecuted people. 1.1 million Rohingya people live in Myanmar, Burma. And they live predominantly in Rakhine State, where they have coexisted uneasily alongside Buddhists for decades. Rohingya people say that they are descendants of Muslims, perhaps Persians or, and Arab uh, traders, who came to Myanmar generations ago. Unlike the Buddhist community, they speak a language similar to the Bengali dialect in Bangladesh. The Rohingya are reviled by many in Myanmar as illegal immigrants, and they suffer from systematic discrimination. The Myanmar government treats them as stateless people, denying them citizenship. Stringent, stringent uh, restrictions have been placed on the Rohingya people. Freedom of movement, access to medical assistance, education, and other basic services. Horrible. And again, 89% population are followers of Buddhism. What do we learn? What are we... How do we actualize it? And then I saw another uh, article in the New York Magazine that was trying to shed light on how this happened, what perpetuated this. And it says that there is one famous Buddhist monk who was on the cover of Time Magazine a couple of years ago. And he's described as a Buddhist Bilada. His name is Ashim Riratu. Very strange character because he wears the Buddhist skull, which is worn to demonstrate your withdrawal from the world. And at the same time, he has a diamond-studded watches. His diamond-studded watch. He flies on a private jet. Completely <coughs> contradicting to what the teaching or the guidance is. Right? He's one of the main instigators of the violence. There, it says, Buddhists believe in reincarnation and. Wiratu and his followers, right, his Buddhist followers, this is a nationalist movement, uh, 969, mm -hmm. called, 
They believe that the Rohingya minority have all reincarnated from, listen to this, snakes and insects. So when you kill them, you're not actually killing people, you're just killing snakes and insects. Now, even, even okay, let's say that, that's what we believe that. But if you really look, really understand what Buddhism teaches, snakes and insects are being too. Yeah. It's not like, okay, well, we can kill them because they're not people. There's no difference there, in a way. So, again, a huge gap between what Buddhism teaches and what, what we see. And it says that that laid the foundation for the current situation we're in. So, complete misalignment between the action and the teaching. And, and even, even if we don't even look at Buddhism, right? Complete misalignment with basic understanding of humanity and compassion. Forget Buddhism. How is this? How do we justify this in terms of just being human? Basic level of compassion. And then this can greatly affect how Buddhism is seen in the world, how we are seen in the world, we as practitioners. Right? So, yeah, we're here, we're trying to follow, we're trying our best to follow the teachings, to follow what we need to follow, what we are working with, what we chant, what we practice. Yet, somebody from the outside looking at us, right? I mean, there are so many misconceptions already. And then on top of that, there's this. Recently, I saw some emails floating around among the teachers of the White Klamath Sangha raising uh, concern about that, right? And, and trying to figure out ways to correct the distortion. But how do we do that? How do we correct the distortion without preaching, without being self righteous about it, without creating another gap? We may say for good reasons, but still, a gap is a gap. Right? How do we do that? It goes back to practice. The question is, how do we practice? How is Buddhism practiced in the world? Is the question. So in his book, uh, Why Buddhism is True, which you read, you read it, uh, Robert Wright says, two of the most common Western conceptions of Buddhism is that it's atheistic and then it revolves around meditation or wrong, he says. Most Asian Buddhists do believe in gods, though not an omnipotent creator God, and do not meditate. So we have to look at this maybe first, right? So you know we cannot just begin from an assumption that all Buddhists or people that follow Buddhist tradition actually practice correctly. And again, it's not that we are, we are here to say we got the right message and they're wrong. That's completely not the point. The, the point is to ask ourselves, what are we practicing? What are we following? And how do we share it with the world? Right? As odd as this may sound, actually quite correct statement when he said, many people around the world who identify themselves as Buddhists do believe in deities, some deities, 
And do not meditate. And do not meditate. Well, how else would we verify for ourselves if we don't meditate on a regular basis? And on a regular basis means on a daily basis, actually. I think I talked about a while ago that this is essential. Coming to a place, you know, being involved with Sangha is essential because it helps. It strengthens individual practice, but it's not in lieu of daily practice, meditation practice at home. You know, being here is like being on a bus and you have a driver, and uh, you know, you hop on the bus and the driver is in charge of deciding when to stop the bus. Right? Until then, you may see a beautiful view along the way, but you're not going to jump out the window because, oh, this is great, I want to go over there. Right? So, in a way, we give our responsibility to the driver. Until then, well, I'm here, I might as well sit. Now, it's not the same when we are at home, because we are the driver. Which means, if I see a nice sight, I can stop, pull over, and go there. Right? If I have an interesting thought, I say, well, I'm done today. I know I set up to sit for 25-30 minutes, but 15 minutes is good because I don't want to miss that view. So then I stop the bus, I get off, I go somewhere else, and there goes the commitment to sit for 25-30 minutes. So it's both are important. It's important to show up at the center and to have somebody drive the bus while you focus on your practice, and at the same time also to be the one who is driving to be the one who is setting out the, the time frame and the structure and to follow it, to actually follow it, to not obey impulses. And in that, this is in a way the, the, the furnace in which we burn everything, and everything means everything, all our concepts, all our thoughts, Thoughts about the world, thoughts about Buddhism, thoughts about ourselves, thoughts about our past. Everything gets burned out completely in that. And then, and then we look at what is left. Otherwise, otherwise we, we never actually get a chance to verify. Because we don't see for ourselves, because we trust what we read, or we go to a lecture, and then, okay, here's what this person said, and that might, must be true, and now I know what the truth is. Right? We miss the fact that everything is wide open. We miss that, and we hold on to a conceptual world, conceptual me, conceptual you. And all that must go. One of the People there was talking talk about uh, selflessness. What does it mean to be selfless? And um, and there was somebody there, and I asked him. We we had a conversation from everybody, and I asked him, "Well, who are you? If if I ask you who you are, and I ask you to not tell me anything about your past and everything you know about yourself, who are you? What else is there other than what you know about yourself? Is there anything else?" Or is that how we evaluating and valuing the human being based on the known, based on the facts, 
He said, well, yeah, everything I, you know, I am is everything I know, everything that happened to me up to this point. And I said, well, what happens if you have an accident, car accident, and all those memories are gone? You're no longer a person? Then what? Who are you then? No memories, no recollections. You don't remember the people that you're connected to, related to. Then what? Of course, it's very disconcerting and, and confusing. But besides that, how do we evaluate and value a person, a human being? Based on what? And then, so we had a very interesting uh, exchange, which was a very lively exchange. And then I asked him, but you see, I said, you see, I don't know anything about you and your past, you don't think about me, yet you and I are connecting in the most direct way. Isn't that beautiful? What is missing? So, in a way, not knowing anything about the other person is, is a gift, because then the mind doesn't know how to judge. Right? It's not like, oh, well, I know this much about this person, so there's this person, so I already boxed for this person, and this is where the person goes or the situation, or whatever it is I encounter. But to not know, to actually go directly to the conversation, to the interaction, to the heart of it, is what Buddhism is about, right? To, to Ozen, direct perception. To go beyond what we think about ourselves, another environment, and to go directly to what's going on. And to verify who we are through that, through direct perception, which is opposite of what we are used to. We're used to feeding off news. We're used to feeding off each other, you know, what we hear, what we don't hear. And then we create an image of the world. And it's just an image. Yet we live and die right. So do not meditate. Right? And the regular meditation is, is a key component to the practice, the cornerstone of practice. And then the non-duality that is realized through regular meditation actually removes the gap so there's no space for beliefs and worship. Who is going to worship what? There's, no, there's nothing that is being put on a pedestal. There are so many misconceptions. A lot of people think that this over there is the God we bow to. Yeah, you have your God, we have our God. That doesn't make sense. Even logically, it doesn't make sense. It's not that each group have their own, and then we have to figure out a way to coexist with each other. Somebody asked about how I um, started practicing you know, growing up in Israel. They, they, one of the things that they couldn't really fathom is how can I be a Jewish and, and, and Buddhist? I mean, it just didn't work for them, right? And I said, well, you know, I'm not, neither this or nor that. The fact that I grew up, that I was born to a mother who is called 
Jewish. Doesn't mean anything. What is it? What is Jewish? What is Buddhist? What is Christian? Nothing. It's nothing. Doesn't matter what you call it, 101, 103, 105. It doesn't mean anything. But yet we call it something and there it is. And we think it means more than what it is. But there's no way to, to bridge the gap unless we meditate with it. And also if we don't practice in accord with the Dharma and don't verify through our own experiences, we have no choice but to create images of and then over time, they get very rooted. Those images become mainstream. And the fact that those images are far removed from the origin actually is meaningless. Because this is what we believe. This is your God. That's what you bow to. Don't tell me anything else. I'm not buying any other explanation. But we're not explaining. We're not defending. Right? How, okay, if we are dealing with defending quote-unquote Buddhism, the only way to defend it is to practice it. And the only way to practice it is to realize that there is nothing to defend. Otherwise, we feed the same loop over and over again. We go back to the same place. And it's the same with Christianity too. If you look at the original teachings, you look at what's happening today, how did this happen? How did we get to that? We are lost in thought. Right? We get lost in thought. We know what to do with that, us as practitioners. We purposefully sit and look at thoughts and learn to not get lost in thoughts. That's the primary. That's the way out. That's the way from concept to reality. Do not believe any thought that shows up, even thoughts, and maybe more so thoughts about the practice. Because if we are, if we are too occupied, if we are occupied with thoughts about the practice, it's a very fine line between that to becoming self-righteous about it. Because we start to feel good about practicing. Maybe we have some experiences and we feel, wow, this was good. I am different. I am better. That's how the gaps begin. And it is, I want to say one more thing about that. Uh, I just read, I got that email yesterday, again from the White Lama Sangha emails. This came out yesterday, came out there. And, um, this guy is, is Burmese, actually, and he, Try, he's a scholar and he tried to explain a little bit about what, why it is this way. And one of the things he said, he said that since the day Burma gained uh, independence from the British rule, monks have voluntarily given up the right to vote. Right? So, and the reason, he says, if they exercise the right to vote like layperson, they must also take moral responsibility for the mistakes of the government they have voted for. And they do not want that responsibility. And that's odd, I have to say. This is odd. As, as practitioners, right, we are we're not isolating ourselves from. 
And even that doesn't, doesn't work. We can't just say, well, you know, I'm not going to take responsibility. Well, what are we doing? We are one. The fact that atrocities are, 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 being, are being done, right, are happening over there in the country I live in, and I'm just going to practice. What are we practicing? And for what? For what? If we can't actualize it by sharing it, by living it, we have to ask, the we, we here have to ask the question, what is the practice? What is it about? And it's not to pass judgment on these people. That's not the point. But just to raise the question, what am I practicing? Am I isolating myself through the practice? So to not want to take moral responsibility. This is a lot there to, to look at, obviously. So he says, therefore, in this case, even if the military was under the full control of the elected government, Buddhist monks would still refuse to take responsibility for, the, for whatever mistakes the military has made. But whatever mistakes the military make, is those are our mistakes as human beings. We can't say they are making mistakes and I'm just saying, I'm going to, I'm right or wrong. We're all making mistakes. So we have to open it up. And that is the world. What we call it doesn't mean anything. It's just this is the state of things. And this is what we have to work with. So the refusal to take responsibility. What about us? What about our lives? What do we refuse to take responsibility for? Our own thoughts, words, and actions. I don't want to go over there because they influence me in the wrong way, so I'm going to go to the other direction. And then put a wall, a gap, in the name of Buddhism. How is this possible? It's possible if I create an idea of Buddhism. Maybe if I call it Buddhism, even that already may be too late. Maybe we should realize that by calling it Buddhism, we truly are calling it nothing. So we should not get trapped by our own language, use of language. Of course, we have to communicate. We communicate all the time. But we have to understand that what we communicate about is free of, of our own communication. It's free of the words we assign to, the names we assign to. Because if we don't, if we don't understand that experientially, it's just a matter of time before we get trapped. Whether it's this or that, we're going to get trapped. Someone asked about reincarnation, if I believe in reincarnation. I said, I don't, I'm not interested in that. I asked him, what about this life? What about this one here? Fine. Let's say that there is a reincarnation and you were an ant and an elephant and a donkey and a ruler and whatever. Who cares? What do you do about this one here? How do you live and embody this life? And I said, this is all I'm interested in. I don't need to believe in anything. It takes too much energy. I want to devote all my energy to doing the best I can here in this life. 
What was, was, what happens next, what happened next. So, I don't know. And it doesn't matter. Because it is irrelevant. Because if you truly follow the Dharma, if you really practice the Dharma and embody it, everything is included anyway. What was and what will be. How, where, here. It's all included. We can't reject, we can't deny, we can't purge. Cannot, it doesn't matter how far you remove these people. Put them on the moon. You are one with them. Put them on the moon. Find another galaxy for them. You are one with them. Deny as much as you want. It won't work. It's nonsense. But yet again, not to reject the people who act this way or think this way or to pass judgment on them. We just have to understand how to practice correctly. So when, when Zhushan said there is extensive discussion about Buddhism, that line underneath says, the footnote says, lower your voice. Quiet for a while. Stop talking about it. Listen. You want to understand the Dharma? Listen. Not to yourself, because what you listen to when you speak is only your word, your thoughts, your concepts, what you know. You get quiet for a while. You may actually hear the voice of the Dharma. And if you do hear the voice of the Dharma, follow that. Because we speak a lot, and then we say, well, you know, here, I just heard it. Yeah, I just said it, and I heard it, I'm going to follow that. Lower your voice. So instead of participating in a discussion about Buddhism, or trying to convince other people what Buddhism is or is not, step away from the chatter. Don't take sides. And then Dijan said, how can that compare to me here, planting the fields and making rice to eat? Right? So discussion about Buddhism is not Buddhism. Making rice to eat. Is that Buddhism? Or is, just that, is that only making rice to eat? As the pointer says, scholars plow with a pen. Orators plow with the tongue. We patchwork mendicants, us, lazily watch the white ox on an open ground, not paying attention to the rootless, auspicious grass. What is the white ox on open ground? Lazily watch. Knowing, realizing exactly where things are at. Knowing what matters. Getting in touch with the source, allowing the source to move us. Realizing there's nothing to argue about, nothing to defend. And not paying attention to the ruthless, auspicious grass. Any realization, any understanding must be let go of, cleared up, burned up completely. Don't pay attention to that too. But I'm a Buddhist, forget that too. There is no such thing. 
It's everything at the same time. Everything is included. That's what that is. Nothing is left out. There is no Buddhism and then over there the Christians and then over there the Jews and the Muslims. And no. To truly understand is to truly practice and through practice it's revealed. I'm not saying you should believe what I'm saying, obviously. This is not the point. All I'm saying is that everything we do is designed in a way for one purpose. It's designed to push us deeper into the practice so we verify for ourselves. So not paying attention to the rootless, suspicious grass, right? And more lazy to watch the white ox. Wu Wei, active all day, doing nothing. Right action. Right action. My thoughts about what I'm doing are not that important. It's what I'm doing that the attention should go to. I like it, I don't like it. It makes me angry. And I'm, One guy asked about anger, by the way, over there. And, and he asked if, if, about good and bad. And he asked if anger is a bad thing. Or is it a good thing? I said, well, it's not a bad nor good. It's an arising kind of energy. It's an emotion, like many others. Strong emotion. As it arises, is neither good nor bad. What you do with it will make it this or that. So if we, depending what direction we go with it, but yes, it can strengthen the greed, anger, and ignorance, right? Those three can be strengthened by acting in a specific way. But we don't have to do that. We can transform, transmute that. So then he asked, well, what should I do with this anger? And I said, well, clean the house. <laughs> clean the house. It's great kind of energy. It's a lot of energy. Use it. Use it well. Learn how to Learn to recognize their rising emotions. Learn to understand the dynamics, which again we do on the cushion, right? We spend time not moving, looking at everything that arises, studying it, and then learning what to do with it, or maybe what not to do with it. Which direction to go, which direction to not go with it. So even anger. Even that we should not box or give a name to. It is bad. Is it? How do you know? Because other people use it in that way? That's how we know? Well, what about us? What about you? How do you work with anger? The footnote says, don't brag so much. <coughs> don't brag so much. And you don't talk about it so much. Even if you do have some understanding, some level of understanding. Oh, I got it. No, you don't. Because I got it means there's something that wants to write it. That some, there is something that wants to say, okay, oh, that's the new me now. That's who I am now. I'm going to get that. Better than the previous version, 
Right? I'm a Buddhist. I'm a realized Buddhist. Even better than the other Buddhists. It's endless. And I'm saying it's, it's endless. It, it, is, it doesn't matter what we do. There's always this in the background that is waiting to grab hold of, to take ownership, to claim ownership, to say, to say this is who you are now. Trust me, I know you well. We got a chance to work with Mala last week, right? For a few days. Maybe we learn how it operates better. That's what I'm doing, to learn how it operates. So it's important to, to, to not go to the concept about practice. I, I spoke with somebody a few weeks ago uh, from another tradition, he's a practitioner, and he was talking about how the practice seems stale for him at this point. So we, we, uh, we, we talked about it for a little bit, and then after talking and, and shedding light, he realized that what is stale is only his thoughts about the practice. What he has done with it, how he has defined it, how he has defined himself in relation to the practice. That is stale. That is boring. Practice cannot be boring. Because practice is not about what we know, it's about what we don't know. How can what we know be boring? How? How do we slap a label on, on what is fresh and open and, and free? And then we believe that the, the label actually defines it. So Zhushan said, what can you do about the world? And then the footnote says, yeah, there's still this. There is this. Right? So we can't... There's still a lot of misconception. So we can't just, well, I'm practicing correctly, so the hell with everybody else. They have to figure it out on their own. There's still this. There are still people acting out of delusion, still suffering. How is planting the fields and making rice helping anyone? And how are these simple everyday activities helping the world? Is Dijan creating a secluded bubble so he can live in peace while suffering is happening somewhere else? Is that what they do in Myanmar? Is that the same? Is what Dijan talking about is what's happening there? It may seem this way. But we have to look. We have to look if he's actually ignoring what's happening. Or is he teaching? So then Jushan asked, what do you call the world? Sorry, uh, this was Dijan. Dijan asked Jushan, what do you call the world? So if you're asking me if what I'm doing is helping the world, right, then you are, are, you are resting this question on an assumption that you understand what the world is. Do you know what you call the world? Do you know what it means 
that everything is codependent, everything is co-arising. Do you understand what Indra's net is teaching us? Nothing exists in the vacuum. How do we teach? How do we show? What is the world? In the Diamond Sutra it says, it is not the world, therefore it is called the world. Yeah, there is still this, as the footnote says. It is precisely because it is not. But the it is not is what we have to go to on a regular basis before we can go back to what is. And the it is not is found in Zazen. This is what we get in touch with is not. And then from there we go out and deal with what is called the world. To understand it is not. Right? From there we can help and become a force of goodness in the world. There are many ways to help, to be of service. Right? to do good for others. But until and unless we experience the even, until we experience the even, we will not be able to truly embrace and work with the uneven or the crooked. Because the crooked will be a problem for us. So to see the even in the uneven, to see the straight in the crooked, to see the unity in the division, this is why we practice, this is what we practice. But not conceptually, only experientially. Not because it looks a certain way, not because we have a statue up there and altar and a candle and the incense. And all this doesn't mean anything unless we, or maybe the other way, the meaning of all this is your life. You separate that, you come to a place to sit, to practice, to chant, and then chop, then chop it up away from the world, from the rest of the world, then we see what happens. We know exactly what happens. And I'm not sure if we're doing anything different if we act this way. Different than others we think are doing something wrong or bad. So we have to make it real. We have to really practice. Really practice. So then the commentary says, even though planting the field and making rice is ordinary, unless you investigate to the full, you do not know their import. Unless you, again, it said that twice, even in the beginning too, the, um, before the case, right? the pointer says the same thing as the commentary. Unless you investigate to the full, you do not know their impact. So now, planting field and making rice to eat, right? You know, this is the same as driving the car, going to work and going shopping, doing the laundry. We don't plant the field, but this is how we plant the fields. So unless we understand, investigate fully and understand, we do not understand how this is Buddhism, the life of Buddhism. It says that the ancients would rip and boil chestnuts and rice at the edge of a hoe in a broken-legged pot. 
Deep in the mountains, their fortune was no more than contentment. No more than contentment. All their lives, they never sought from anyone. Their nobility was no more than purity and serenity. No more than purity and serenity. Thus, having investigated to the full, you clearly know there is nothing to seek. Having investigated to the full, you clearly know that all is one. Everything is united. Nothing is opposing anything. Nothing can be purged. Even embracing is not, we say, to embrace. But to embrace means to be in alignment. Because you're not. It's not the act of doing something. It's the act of the act that comes out of realization that all is already embraced. Then you just do what you do. Do the laundry. That's how you embrace. Well, that's how embracing is showing up. So how do we practice and do we practice all the time? All the time means all the time. So going forward, going forward, let's, let's make our lives moment by moment investigation. Let's, let's make a decision. Let's, let's raise the intention to actually practice every moment and to, to lose Buddhism into being Buddhism. And then the labels, what we call it, fade away and all that's left is what we're meant to practice, how we're meant to practice. It's the only one. Their fortune was no more than contentment. Work on that.